back to God's Eternal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Baptism of Fire, Chapter 3. So this is one of my favorite chapters. It's probably my favorite chapter of this book. What's fun about it is that it's ultimately an inconsequential chapter. Nothing major happens. No um, specific insights. A lot of the stuff from the previous chapters continued. There's an introduction of a new character. There's some spoilery stuff that is discussed. Um, but ultimately, it is a smaller more down-to-earth chapter. The first half of it is Geralt and co. traveling along the road, dealing with uh, traveling through war zones, just like they were last chapter, uh, but there's different look at that kind of thing here. And then the next time is in, uh, in Fen Cairn with uh, good old Regis being introduced to the party in them getting drunk with Regis uh, and just having a good old grand time. Uh, there's a lot of emotions, there's a lot of uh, characters dealing with things, but it is ultimately a small-scale chapter. And I think that's what I like about it, is that not only is it full of fun, it is an intensely fun uh, chapter. It's, it's the Mandrake chapter. It's the chapter that, that's what I call it, and, and, and everybody who's ever read this book always remembers this chapter because it is just the characters bouncing off each other, having a good time, revealing things um, as, as far as character-wise, um, some large stuff. But it's all minor. What, what's important is the feeling of camaraderie. It is a bunch of friends, or people who, some people who just met, but they're growing fond of each other, getting drunk and forming more of a friendship, more of a bond. And... I think that's enduring. Like, I'm a teetotaler, I don't drink, but I have friends who do. And often, I am like Regis in this situation where I am the only one not drinking, but I um, they, 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 I enjoy the company, and it doesn't matter if they get drunk and they start repeating themselves, I find it amusing. So I continue on, just like Regis did. And I find that um, it's something lacking in a lot of fiction. Some fiction does it. I, I heard it best that sometimes westerns are the best because they know when to mosey. And, uh, uh, and, and sometimes I understand that because it's all about small stuff. One of the reasons noir is one of my favorite genres is it's all about tone. It's all about atmosphere. Uh, and as such, you can have a very long scene of just a guy getting out of bed. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that because it's mundane and yet it sticks in your head because the, it sets the tone, it sets the atmosphere. And a lot of what Spikowski has been doing with The Witcher is been doing stuff like that. Taking stuff that would be relatively normal fantasy fare, turning it on its head, either making fun of it, elongating it to give it more weight, etc. And that's why this chapter sticks out to me. Um, it's about character. It's about sitting down and just being friends and especially nowadays there's been a lot of you know um shifts in the way we tell stories it, over the the many thousands of years we have been telling stories to each other um and i happen to grow up in this era and i've noticed there's been a large shift to instant gratification in fiction everything has to happen now there can't be slow there can't be a time when we just sit back. And even when that does happen, it's cut short compared to a lot of other 
uh, things, and I find that irritating. And, you know, over the past couple of years especially, because the the rise of the internet and internet criticism, which this is a part of, that has become more of a thing of something gets criticized if it's too slow or too dark or too whatever. There, there is ways that, that that can present a problem, most certainly. But sometimes it's intentional to really just let you mosey, let you sit in this moment and understand. And I wish more fiction did this. This is what's wonderful about this book series, and it's something I fear is not going to be in the Netflix show because of their constant pace. It's got to go, 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 go now. That hurt their quote-unquote adaptation of Blood of Elves especially. Um, and I fear that's going to be the case here. You know, I don't know. I, I can't tell the future, and I'm most likely not going to watch it because... That show has disappointed me way too many times, but it's just something that I miss. And this series gives that to me. And it kind of hurts me to know that an adaptation doesn't understand that that's what's special. But anyway, so this uh, this chapter, the first half of it being the uh, the, the traveling along until they get to Finn Cairn, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things being thrown out there, like uh, they're on a road that has been uh, slowly disassembled uh, brick by brick over years, basically, that nothing in the Witcher world is unique. It has all been built one after the other on top of each other, layers and layers of history. And, you know, and as a result, people tear down the 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 history to build the current so these these bricks for this road are being used to simple walls etc everything is built on top of each other it kind of reminds me of um you know there, there, there's a there's a time between uh certain eras of human history which we just don't have a whole lot of information on for for instance the bronze age uh you know because Copper and iron were the previous ages, because um, this was the uh, the way we we talk about these eras is based on the technology level, which is based on these um, metallurgical ideas. Bronze is a mixture of copper and iron, which means that all the old stuff had to be destroyed and remade to make the bronze stuff, which means that there's a lot of information that we just don't have because all of that had to be reused and so the old eventually not only slept away but was literally undone by the new and uh and how that affects our understanding of history uh and and that's what we see here is that you know human cities are built on top of elven cities which are which are built on top of dwarven cities etc etc and um you create the foundation using that and then you make your own stuff so that it supports your your lifestyle your uh, promotes your superiority your conquering of the land but then ah, we don't have enough material so let's uh, disassemble this road and make a wall out of it and it's just the ways in which economy leads to the death of history in many ways, but also leads to the uh, preservation of history, and there's a dichotomy there that's interesting. And there's also a lot of Sapkowski just laughing 
at uh, traditional fantasy, especially Lord of the Rings, uh, there are two bits where it's just so blatantly hilarious that he's just laughing at Tolkien. They come across the diverging part of the river. I was like, oh! And uh, Data Alliance, what? what? What is it significant? He's like, no, 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 it's called the O. Um, it, it's making a joke about how, in fantasy especially, uh, we create these big epic names that have historical, cultural, or religious, uh, you know, special meanings to them. And in reality, that's never the case. Give a great example. In the United Kingdom, there was a hill called Torpin Howe Hill. When translated fully to English, that means hill, 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 hill. Because in the infinite wisdom of the world, each person that came to it gave it a normal name. It's the hill. And as languages change, as, you know, history moved, you know, tides and borders, you got the old English name for it, you got the uh, the Welsh name for it, you got the uh, Latin name for it, and then you got the modern English name for it. Thus, you have a hill that is named four different times as hill. Sahara Desert, a far more commonly known place than Torpin Howe Hill. Sahara is Arabic for desert, so it is the desert desert. Uh, and that is the thing about fantasy naming conventions is that often it takes this grandiose look at the way geography is formed and the, the way we think about things culturally, politically, etc. In reality, that's so very rarely done. It does happen, certainly, but not to the extent in which fantasy media portrays it. And so that is him directly making fun of that. And he's done that before, and he will do it again in another point, especially in Season of Storms. The Torpenau Hill becomes quite literal with the place called The Hill. And so it's just it, it's just a cute little thing. And then when uh, Geralt and Co. get lost, and they said they had the Fincairn, like, uh, you know, in Lord of the Rings, they're traveling these great, grand distances, right? And uh, they only get lost a couple of times in the, in the span of those books. Um, and it's, it's just kind of ridiculous, especially for Frodo and Sam, who are like uh, complete newbies to all this. And of course, they end up getting Schmeagol to help them. But that, that, that's, that's neither here nor there, that they, they still uh, were able to travel quite a ways without Schmeagol's help. And so it's just impractical. Uh, and so, of course, they're, they're, they're going a small distance. They're just following the bloody river to a, a particular place in hopes of getting out of the war zone. And guess what? They got lost. Uh, these are two instances in which Sipkowski is just pointing and laughing at fantasy and the absurdity of some of it. Um, he did this also especially with uh, Ike Danelle, I pointed out, of uh, the laughing at the idea of the heroic knight that goes and saves princesses from evil creatures and how ridiculous that is. What's so great about Witcher is that it simultaneously tells a compelling story with great characters, serious drama, weighty ideas. At the same time, it is tongue-in-cheek making fun of fantasy tropes, using said tropes to point out how stupid they are and ridiculous, and that's okay. The two can coexist. It can be simultaneously a very personal, politically-minded drama. At the same time, it's a 
tongue-in-cheek satire. Those can coexist, and that's okay. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that makes these books so much fun uh, on many different levels. And going along with like the uh, the Warzone stuff from last chapter, uh, they uh, Gareth and Co come across a uh, bunch of hanged corpses, and all the corpses have like um, have been branded with you know certain crime that caused them to be hanged, but they are all essentially the same thing. It's like traitor and informer and uh, narc and whore, and all of it is just basically another word for the other they were scared they found a linchpin they found a scapegoat so they struck and the the words were meaningless they all mean the same thing the other the ones we were scared of and we're just seeing a repeated deal of the the war is not the issue i mean it is causing this stuff in in a roundabout way but it is not the thing that scares us most or proves to be the most miserable the most disgusting in these cases the world is war and that is awful but it is what happens when this war passes by us and what we are left with and the people who have become desensitized to that they even point out when they go to think Karen like uh milva says i'd much rather take my chances with ghouls than i would humans and that kind of shows you that you know the scariest thing in this circumstance isn't the war, isn't the monsters, it's the people who are going to take advantage of it at every angle, as we saw last chapter. At Fen Cairn, there's this wonderful gothic atmosphere, they're in an ancient cemetery of elves, and it's just like, it, it's all creepy, and we, we had the entire idea of like, there's ghouls about in this war zone, you know, predators preying on predators who are preying on predators, you know, that the, the multi-cycle of even after the war has left this area, it is still scarred. Um, and so then, to have it take a sudden comedic bet, when we meet our wonderful, wonderful friend, Regis. And he invites them in, they, they get along, and they have uh, moonshine made from Mandrake, which we open this chapter with a, uh, a scientific looking at it, as well as a superstitious looking at it, and sort of breaking down how ludicrous that is. And... How everything in this world is kind of just hearsay, misinformation, superstition, all bundled into one, so that leads to people to not fully understand basic concepts, like the the uh, you know the properties of mandrake that it can't cast spells, that it doesn't shriek, etc. All that jazz. It, it's a nice little inversion where we're expecting something. We've been building building up to this. There's even like that bit where Geralt has like the deal where, you know, that silver-tipped arrow might help, but most likely it won't, you know. And uh, and then we edge closer to horror, and then and we even have like a, a person coming out of like stone deal, and it turns out to be Regis, and we're all like, oh, funny doctor man, have a fun time, and it's a nice little inversion where you're expecting it, and then it turns you on your heel, much like the the, the fantasy inversions with the, the 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 O and the getting lost. The conversations that happen while they're getting drunk on the Mandric Moonshine is a lot of fun. Uh, you got Regis who abstains from drinking. He doesn't drink anymore. Um, he claims he once had a problem, so he has eliminated many vices. 
Um, and that, that brings another deal of, you know, uh, he, he has a direct line that says, you know, everyone has their good points to even out the vices. That's clearly something he's interested in because he asks everybody about their opinions, both politically and personally, uh, to bring out the, the you know, the, the radical ideas as well as the um, argumentative ideas as well as the compassionate ideas and really get a sense of who these people are, which is why he decides to join them at the end of the chapter is because he realizes they're all good people. They mean well. Some of them have more uh, strict opinions than others, but that's okay. That's, that's just the way people are. But they show great compassion and they have heart. And so I will join them. The conversation with uh, Zoltan in particular is interesting because we get some world building with Ruva Hoog and the entirety of Mahakam. Uh, we've heard about Mahakam and Ruva Hoog for a while, but we've never really gotten a, a, a clear look at some of the stuff there. That essentially, the dwarves basically are in a better place than the elves because they are economically minded that the elves once had this great empire that was taken over by the humans and now they're hunted and it's just creating a miserable cycle of violence and the dwarves were a part of that in some ways especially the young ones but they have propped themselves up by having control of a mountain that contains a lot of good resources and because of those resources they are well armed to keep themselves safe so they know that the attack is very unlikely and if attack happens people fear the consequences of that being cut off from the resources etc so the dwarves have managed to mostly avoid some of the abhorrent you know pogroms and racism behavior merely because they are economically valuable. And that's even Bruver Hoog's entire motivation when dealing with uh, the Scoyotel, is that there are dwarves who are joining the Scoyotel, uh, but it's primarily younger ones, radical ideas, b big mouths, big hearts, that kind of thing, uh, to quote The Expanse. So Bruver has basically enforced... Uh, you know, mining for these younger people so that they don't leave the mine, so that this increases production, which means they can then continue to sell it to the northern realms, which mean, and as well as Nilfgaard, as uh, Zoltan points out, which means that they are economically viable, which means they will not receive repercussions for anything that a member of the race does, because they are valuable and uh, and any kind of racially motivated issue there will just cause the resources to be cut off. It is entirely built on uh, as, on the evils of capitalism to keep themselves afloat and keep themselves from racism. It's quite an interesting concept there. And Zoltan finds it simultaneously revolting and satisfying that his people have managed to survive this. Uh, but he also distastes, uh, uh, you know, Mahakam in general and the, in the clan culture of the dwarves, as well as he dislikes Bruver in particular. You know, meanwhile, you got the gnomes who are hiding out on all this technological advances that they share with the dwarves so they can sort of piggyback off their economic specialty so that they also don't suffer it uh, when they're living in Mount Carbon. And, and then with uh, Geralt, we're seen as a, you know, people are interpreting him in a certain way. Um, you know, he... Uh, he has is he is something of a legend. Uh, he doesn't like to be this legend, 
Uh, but he is one, and uh, many tales have been told about him, mainly things to online, but a few other things, and that has caused, you know, certain misinterpretations of who he is, what he is, what he's about, and that, that plays into where he talks about to Regis, who's using high-minded, very high vocabulary words, and he's like, ah, yes, the classic tactic to make, uh, make you seem like you're uh, more arrogant, more uh, important than you actually are, and Regis even is like, well, I'm sure you know something about that, and down to lion jokes that it was because of Yen, but we also know, as I've talked about he, him being a big old phony, the way he does his vocabulary, the way he talks to people, whether they are in the know or not, informs that comfort blanket. He's the emotionless monster hunter. And so he talks like that. And when he is coaxed out of that shell is when we see the true him, uh, who is someone who was deeply in love uh, and is now a father. And that changed him and that made him a different man. And that in uh, we're starting to see how that sort of aspect of him is becoming more well-known, especially among this group. Um, and his stubborn mentality, his uh, oafishness in many ways, his unwillingness to change um, is really going to come to bite him in the ass because these people legitimately care about him and legitimately understand him, but he wants to push them away because he's scared. Um, you know, when Dandelion mentions... Searing. Of course, he wanted to keep it a secret from Zoltan in, in the caravan in general, just in case, which is understandable, but also it made him afraid because it made him think about everything he's going to have to do. Uh, and even when he's, you know, when Dandelion spills the beans when everyone's drunk, you know, Regis says it's not that hard to figure out from the way you were going. Um, and everybody kind of knows that this is a dumb mission and it's probably not going to succeed. But they're willing to go along with it anyway, and he is the one that is the most concerned right now. Not just for serious safety, but for the safety of these people who obviously care about him. And he doesn't know how to deal with that, because he used to be the loner. Or let's say he thinks he's the loner, and he loves to hide behind that rather than dealing with his actual real emotions. And that will come to a head uh, rather soon. Uh, th there's also, like, a Milva sort of coming out of her shell, being less authoritative, being less confrontational, and now we're playing the things later. Um, but there's a really nice scene between uh, Geralt and Milva when they go outside and uh, she she's basically, in a much kinder way than she has before, confronting him and saying, Hey, you're hiding from yourself. Regis even says this uh, as well. When uh, when Galt takes the drink and they were talking about his injury to his leg and how it never properly healed and how there's damage to his nerves. Uh, you know, he takes a big drink and he's like, I think you're trying to cure the wrong ailment. And that right there is everybody just kind of knows he's hiding from himself. Geralt's the only one who thinks he is and succeeding in hiding it. He's not. He's a stubborn old man stuck in his ways. And he's just so fucking scared for the ones he loves. Yen, who might be dead. Siri, who's... He, you know, he's being told she's in Nilfgaard, you know, becoming the Empress, but these visions tell him something else entirely. Speaking of that vision, the his final vision, which ends off this chapter, is Siri dancing with the rats in this tavern. It's a short scene, uh, but I think uh, highlights something that's interesting, is that as much as the rats are evil people, 
They are the children of contempt. They they care not. They uh, they are all about the immediate stuff, you know, pleasure, pain, etc. Um, you know, it's me before anyone else. There is still moments of joy that can be had. Living in the moment is an understandable view of life, just that they go too far with it. And so here, while the peasants were scared, they eventually convinced them to uh, throw the gig together, and they have a dance, and they have a good time. And we see that Siri is able to shed herself, live outside of what was expected of her, what has been told from her since her birth, as well as who she feels she is, and she's able to just live now, in the dance, one step at a time. And she starts crying a little. She sheds a tear. She's no longer Siri. She's not that girl anymore. She wasn't a few chapters ago or even in Time of Contempt at the very end. But this is the moment where she admits to herself, I'm not that little girl anymore. I'm Falka. And as sad as a sentiment that is, there's also joy to be had uh, in her trying best to find her place it's not working out exactly the way she intended it to and it might not be exactly mentally healthy but it is understandable for a girl in her situation no matter how rough things get there can always be a moment of joy a moment of perfect beauty as Babylon 5 would put it now I want to get into some small spoiler sections real quick. Uh, a lot of this stuff will come out in next chapter, you know, a few chapters from now. But, you know, Regis being a vampire plays a lot into this. There's little nods about his true self. And there's the nice joke about, he invited us in. Well, the vampire infighting people in rather than the other way around. Um, and then Melva being pregnant, uh, which is why she was having the issue she had uh, in that quiet scene with Geralt. Uh, and it's also part of the motivating factor of why she uh, went with Geralt is because she is now trying to figure out and understand where she is as a mother, much like Geralt is trying to figure out what he should do as a father. So there's a parallel there. And, and, and obviously everything with uh, Percival Schattenbach and Zoltan and the, 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 the hidden chests, you know, all that will come back into play. But the, the vampire stuff and the, the Milva's pregnancy, I think, is the most important to play into this chapter. It feeds into the characters, their understanding. I did not have the benefit of going in blind. I played the games, or at least the, the third game, and plus the DLCs, which means I knew who Regis was. I knew he was a vampire. So I picked up on all the little uh, hints and stuff to say, hey, I'm a vampire. And it, it, when you know, it's quite funny because it is actually very obvious. And once you get the reveal, you're like, oh, shit, if you didn't know. Uh, obviously, I envy people who didn't get to know, um, yeah, which I'm sure I'll talk about next time. Um, but... Uh, Everything with Milva as well, and why she's becoming so defensive, but also trying to lighten up. Um, you know, ev everything is character this chapter. Um, from minute, small, inconsequential lines to uh, overt details, this, this chapter is all about character flow, character progression, um, and establishing some very important dynamics. And it's a nice breather from... Uh, you know, just big, big things happening because 
stories are allowed to have that, and that's okay. Uh, of course, I would be remiss. I forgot to do this uh, last episode. Percival Schattenbach is the name of the Polish rock slash folk band uh, that provided music for Witcher 3. Um, you know, I, I mentioned some of the game connections last time. I forgot to do that one. Um, and, of course, Percival's entire small arc is happening, uh, you know, sort of begins in this chapter. So I, I figured, hey, why not mention it in this one? Um, and uh, this is just a lovely, lovely chapter. Um, I wish more fiction would do something like this. This is the Mandrake chapter. It's the chapter that does not ever leave my head. It is a chapter that I'm constantly thinking about because it is one of the best chapters in this book, in this series. You know, Baptism of Fire may not be my favorite book in the saga, but it certainly has one of my favorite chapters. Um, and this right here is it. Next time... We will be talking about Chapter 4, in which I will be joined by Josh once again uh, to talk about some stuff. There are a couple of very important characters uh, that he's not had a chance to talk about that feature in that chapter. So it will be exciting to hear his thoughts, especially on Regis and Kahir in particular. Uh, but until then, see ya. Bye. Bye.